right. Do I have to fool around with this? I'll do it. I'm getting instructions over. My name is Sean, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and that's the end of the facts. <laughs> All the rest of this stuff is my opinion, and I'm not an expert on alcoholism, and I'm not a spokesman for Alcoholics Anonymous. But I got some opinions. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've been sober since April 24th, 1974. My home group is the Participation Group in Vancouver, British Columbia, Wednesday night. It's one of the two best groups in the world. I understand you may know of the other one. You just heard it. <laughs> and I'm just uh, delighted to be here. You guys are fantastic hosts. We've been staying at the best bed and breakfast. And uh, we had a wonderful meal last night. You guys really know how to treat drunks. Nice. Okay, I wonder what the hell I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm the first one. What an awful thing to do. <laughs> Look at all you people. You're all awake. <laughs> um, I was born in Canada. I'm a Canadian. We're the, uh, we're the people that invented basketball, the telephone, apple pie, <laughs> Shania Twain. We want to apologize for Celine Dion. We also started same-sex marriages because we believe that gay people should be just as miserable as the rest of us. <laughs> so, and we drink. Oh, boy, do we drink. We have long winters. And um, I was born in Victoria, British Columbia, which is right on the West Coast, and all I wanted out of that town was out. And uh, I got out as fast as I could. We moved to California, and I started getting drunk at 14. And i got to tell you something. I just loved it. The reason I'm standing here is that I love to drink. I mean, let's make no bones about that. I love getting bombed, blasted, ripped, wrecked, destroyed, smashed, all, all, that, all that wonderful stuff we do to describe what we do. I mean, the first time that I got loaded, I came two, three hours later throwing up under a bush, and I could hardly wait to do it again. And... Uh, and it went on from there. I, by the time I was 18 years old, um, when I was 17, I discovered the wonderful world of chemicals. I, uh, I, I w it was the 60s, and, uh, and, and we kind of expanded the definition of alcoholism, our little generation. When we started stumbling into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, we expanded the definition of sobriety, too, much to some people's chagrin. But... Uh, I, um, I started adding that kind of stuff when I was 17 years old. And when I was 18 years old, I declared myself an alcoholic. And I didn't know that I'd done it. But I'd said the phrase that only an alcoholic says. And uh, if you Al-Anons here are wondering what that is, if you ever hear anybody saying it, you're listening to an alcoholic. If you ever say it, you are an alcoholic. And the phrase is, I can control my drinking. <laughs> Social drinkers never deal with that concept. Social drinkers, if they do something stupid whilst drinking, they stop drinking which I think is very bizarre. <laughs> my father was a falling down, insane alcoholic. My brother and I lived in, under the same circumstances. He's 22 months younger than I am. My brother has never had a drink. He looked at my father and said, whoa, I'm never going to drink. I looked at my father and went, whoa, I'm never going to drink like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I, I declared myself an alcoholic when I was 18 years old. I started on the great obsession of every abnormal drinker, which is to control and enjoy my drinking. Now, I don't know about you, but I never got control and enjoy in the same room at the same time ever. When I was controlling my drinking, I was miserable. 
the only way that I've ever liked to drink is wildly out of control. I mean, that's the fun of it. I never drank for the taste or the sociability. I drank for the effect. I mean, I am a stark naked three o'clock in the morning howling at the moon kind of drunk. That's what I am, you know. Give me, you know, a quart of scotch and, whoa, you know, there I go. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that stuff. I hear people talk to the party and they say the drinking stopped working for them. If it had ever stopped working for me, I'd have stopped doing it. But from the first moment I drank to the moment, the night before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, there was always a moment, you know. And I don't know whether it was after the third drink and the fourth pill or the second joint or the, you know, whatever it was. There was a combination that all of a sudden, I was like the eye of the hurricane. I was everything I needed to be. I was absolutely dazzling, you know, <laughs> tough but tender. Sexy but sensitive. You know? Assertive, aggressive, with compassion. You know? A poet and fast with my fist. I was just gorgeous, you know? And then it would start to slip a little, that feeling, you know? So I'd have another one and kind of prop it up, you know? And then it would be. An hour later, and I'd be coming to, and there'd be a bunch of people around me going, <gasps> and I knew I'd done it again, you know, whatever it was. <sighs> Our group one time, about a year ago, we had a discussion on social drinking. <laughs> a bunch of alcoholics sitting around talking about social drinking. I mean, it was a theor theoretical meeting. I mean, <laughs> what the hell do we know about it, you know? So we had this big, we decided that basically what it is, is is you have a couple of drinks and you don't end up naked, you don't end up tattooed, you don't end up married to somebody you don't know their first name, you don't write bad checks, you don't go to jail, and we decided it wasn't worth doing. <laughs> you know, who would want to do that kind of stuff? So by the time I was 21 years old, I was, uh, I decided I had a talent that the world couldn't live without and I went to New York and uh, started doing a lot of Broadway shows and started living this kind of life that they write in books. You know, it was just incredible. I was having a ball. And uh, by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I was drinking a quart of scotch a day, and I picked up a little non-habit-forming marijuana habit, and I, uh, I was working the docks. Now, I, I never bought drugs in alleys, because I think that's dangerous. What, what, what I found you do is you go to doctors and describe symptoms, and, uh, and they'll write you prescriptions for whatever you want. You know, so I just got a medical book, figured out a bunch of stuff, and I'd go talk to all three of the doctors that I was seeing. And, um, and I found out very rapidly that the wonderful thing about doctors is they don't know how to say goodbye. You know, they don't know how to say get out of my office without writing something. And if you give them the right information, they'll write what you want. So I lived in the wonderful world of chemistry for a long, long time. But by the time I was in my mid-20s, I decided I was in trouble. So I started looking to moral superiors. I don't know if you did this, you know, priests, nuns, Christian brothers, uh, you know, uh, Philosophers, psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, soci sociologists, gurus, and uh, spiritual leaders, and um, lawyers, and judges, and policemen, and um, <laughs> and they all explained to me that this is your problem. This is what you should do about it. Well, somebody points a finger at me, I'd fight it off at the knuckle. I don't know about you. I have a learning disability. You know, don't tell me what to do. 
And of course, you never did that. You know, the miraculous thing is when I finally arrived at these doors, crawling into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you never said that. You said something, you said a phrase that absolutely saved my life. And I hope you're still saying this to the guys that are stumbling in the doors. Is you said, I know how you feel. And none of those people had ever said that. None of those doctors, none of those learned people had ever said that. But you said, I know how you feel. And as soon as you said that, it dampened down the anxiety just enough for me to start learning something. And you never said, this is what you should do about your life. You said, this is what I've done. And so I, I grabbed onto this thing like I was drowning, which I was. So anyway, I started, I started getting my act together, and I decided what I needed was a good woman, and I found her in an elevator. And uh, <laughs> we, were, we were both going to do a, a show together. You know, God's really funny. God is just too cool, i got to tell you. Um, I had been slated. I was, I was doing a very big Broadway show in, in New York at the time, and, uh, and they were slating me for a co-starring part in London. Because I was a Canadian citizen, I could work in London. And it came within a week of going to London. Uh, and if I'd have gotten to London, I'd have been a star, man. I mean, they'd have realized what a, what a potential I had, you know. I'd always lived under the crushing burden of potential. You know, I'm an alcoholic. And I, uh, but they, I would have been discovered. I would have been a huge star in, in London. I know that. And then the last week they cast somebody else in England, and I didn't get it. And as a compensation, they offered me a national tour. And on the third day of rehearsal, I got into an elevator with this little blonde who became the love of my life. And uh, so, you know, every no is always a better yes. And uh, she was cute as hell. I saw her on her first day, you know, in her little leotard, <laughs> this little dimpled blonde. And uh, she didn't notice me until three days later when my back went out and I crawled into rehearsal and zing with the strings of her heart. I didn't realize that for a pre-Alanon, a drunk crawling across a hotel lobby was like coming home. <laughs> she realized at a very deep level that I needed her. So we started our dance of death, you know, with, with her trying to change the unchangeable. And uh, we eventually tangoed into AA and Alanon, but we went around and around a bit. So we started. God, it was wild. And we lived in the theater, you know, we were in the theater. And our friends called us the Campbell Soup Kids. They said we were the cutest couple on the block. And we went to parties, and she drank. I mean, she drank. She was a party-hardy girl, you know. Ten martini, what the hell girl. I thought it was heaven. You know, cute blonde who drank like I did. Just great. And see, I was in a field where nobody noticed how badly I drank. And I love that. I love telling you that. Because I've heard that from every newcomer I have ever worked with, you know. I'm an actor, and we drink a lot. Oh, really? I'm a plumber, and we drink a lot. I'm an accountant, and we drink a lot. I'm a nun, and we drink a lot. Isn't it funny? You know, wherever we are, people drink a lot. That's strange. You know? I love it when Mormons tell me that. I'm a Mormon, and we drink a lot. Oh, really? Man. So anyway, um, we uh, we got a show. We went out to California, and I decided that uh, things were going to be better in California. So uh, so we stayed in California, and we got married, and uh, and she settled down. <laughs> and one day we were having our cocktails, as we like to call it, and she had a sip of hers and said, "This is boring," and put it on the coffee table and never drank again. <laughs> <laughs> 
She didn't go through withdrawal. Didn't make her unhappy. Nothing. She's not a drunk. You know, she just didn't drink again. And then she noticed that I drank. And then all hell broke loose. And uh, eventually what happened is uh, on April 23, 1974, I was arrested by the Hollywood Police Department, dead drunk, with my front of my pants from the waistband to the knees, soaked in my own urine, and coming in and out of blackouts. I mean, it was a nightmare. And uh, she wasn't home, luckily. She was off saving somebody who didn't need to be saved. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was forced to look at my behavior. And for the first time in my life, I put together my behavior with my drinking. That was the first time I had ever seen that. You know, up until 11 o'clock uh, on April 23, 1974, I was not an alcoholic. From 11 o'clock on, I was. This is a self-diagnosed disease. It didn't matter how many people suggested that I drank, you know, or said that I drank too much or whatever. Until I put it together, I wasn't an alcoholic, and I've seen that tragedy over the years, you know, where guys, it's obvious they're dying of this disease, but until they put it together firmly in their own mind, you know, it's committing suicide on the installment plan, you know, which is what I was doing. I went to work the next day, and, uh, oh, God, I was in real estate at the time, and we were going around to look at new listings, new houses, and I got it. It was my turn to drive. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, I had to shake, so thank God I was driving because I could grab the wheel. And I got into the car with three women. One of them had been an Alcoholics Anonymous for six years and just loved being an AA. She just talked about being an AA and being a drunk, and she never shut up about it. And, uh, <laughs> and then there's this little lady, she was about 70 years old, named Mary, and she's this, this cutest little Irish lady in the world, and she drank. She liked, she liked her drinks, you know. But it never had any problem. And then there's a woman who was going through a divorce who was was concerned that she was drinking too much. So they had this big, long discussion while we're driving around in the morning about alcoholism and situational drinking and periodic drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking, and I'm dying. And finally, we got back to the office. I took this Suzanne aside, who had six years of sobriety, and I said the last phrase. You know, I said, I'm an alcoholic, and I have 20 minutes before I go to pieces. And I said it just like that. And she dropped everything. She cleared her calendar and she took me to her place. She sat me down at her dining room table, and she 12-stepped me. She brought out the big book. She read Chapter 5. She read Chapter 3. She read the traditions. I thought, my God, that woman's going to read that entire book. <laughs> and then she told me her story. Now, my story was sleazy, but hers was disgusting. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, you know. And she said, we're going to a meeting tonight, and I'm sticking with you today. So I said, um, okay. And uh, she uh, told me what to expect from Alcoholics Anonymous, what it was going to be like, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and she took me to my first meeting, which was a Wednesday night Los Feliz meeting in Hollywood, California. There were about 400 people there. And the room, it was exactly as I feared it was going to be. It was in a church basement. It was filled with smoke. And all those people I never would have drank with were there. And... Uh, and it must have been a slow night for newcomers because they came at me. It was like being dropped into a shark tank. <laughs> I've never seen so many teeth coming at me in my life. <laughs> and then they started saying all this weird stuff to me. It was like being, it was like being stoned to death with fridge magnets. <laughs> Easy does it. Keep coming back. One day at a time. Think, think, think. I thought, what are these people 
think about it. And he kept touching me. Man. Hugging me and oh man. And, oh. But you know what? I thought I loved it. I didn't feel it. I, di- I didn't actually love it. I felt safe. For the first time in my life, I felt safe. I felt safe. Now, I don't know where that that vast well of insecurity had come from. I was born with it. You know, I, there, there's some essential stuff that you're... You know, I got character defects that I've had since I was a week old. I still have them. I don't know what the hell's going on, you know. I've now got some tools to deal with them, and I don't have to inflict them on you. But I still got them. You know, I just—I I believe I was born with an alcoholic personality. My wife will tell you that's true. But uh, so anyway, I sat down next to this guy at my first meeting, and the first AA miracle happened. It was a miracle, <laughs> a AA miracle, because this guy started talking to me. There were 400 people in this room. This guy's talking to me. And his story is exactly the same as mine. He's done everything that I've done, and he's sober. I'm going, whoa, you know? Now, what I didn't remember was that while I was talking to Suzanne that afternoon, she kept jumping up and running out of the room. And I thought, well, with her story, she's obviously got some kidney damage, you know? What I didn't know is the reason this guy's story was exactly the same as mine is he knew my story. She was jumping up and going into the bedroom and calling this guy. She was pumping him the information as I was telling it to her. That's how the Alzheimer's get away with lying in this fellowship. They say, more will be revealed. So the guy became my sponsor. And he started shoving the 12 steps down my throat. I didn't study the 12 steps. I didn't go to groups and read them, you know. I didn't discuss them. I did them, you know, which you can't do. But I did. You know, the first three steps were really easy for me. (laughs) I mean, my life wasn't unmanageable. It was dribbling down my sleeve. It was, you know, that was the easy one. The second one was, you know, restore us to sanity. That was a little difficult because I was going to meetings in Hollywood, California, and there were some clear crazies. I mean... I was a lightweight as far as crazies at some of those meetings. I mean, you know, holy cow. But they had assigned me a new best friend. They do that in AA. My new best friend was Rich, and Rich had six months of sobriety, and he couldn't talk and he couldn't drive. And I had a car and he couldn't shut up. So we, were, so we would drive to meetings, you know, like, and Rich would sit. The only thing Rich ever said was I would say something and he would say, Don't take my inventory. (laughs) So we were going to this really spiffy meeting that meets on Friday nights in Beverly Hills called the Rodeo Drive meeting. The Rodeo meeting has got about 500 people and every every Beverly Hills caterer who gets sober gets to do the, the refreshments, you know. So I remember going to that meeting when there was an ice sculpture on the, you know, with the sandwiches. That's the kind of meeting it was. So it was kind of spiffy. And, and Rich, Rich had, had real thin hair and it was the 70s. You know, we had big hair in the 70s and Rich didn't have a lot of it. But what he did with it was miraculous. And, uh, <laughs> And so I was picking him up for the speedy, and he, you know, he had to torture his hair forward and spray it, and then bend it over and push it back. So we all looked like Peter Lawford, you know. And uh, 
so while he was doing that, he had a big old medical dictionary, and I opened it up, and I looked up the word insanity. People, people kept saying it in meetings, and so I thought, well, I better find out what it was. And it, it had this gripping, long definition, but out of it popped a phrase. And this is a part of the, the, the definition of insanity. Quote, a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. <laughs> Let me run that by you one more time. <laughs> a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. Well, I took the second step right there, right there. Boom. Bam. I mean, that was me. I lived a completely unexamined life. I mean, I kept waking up with who knows what doing after doing God knows what, where, I don't know. And instead of trying to figure out how I got there, my main objective was to get the hell out of there, you know. A moving target is harder to hit was my philosophy of life. So I let, you know, I was constantly getting myself into the same situation over and over and over again without ever trying to figure out how I got there. And so the inability to learn from one's mistakes was clearly me. So I took the second step right there. And then came the third step, which is I, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God if I understand. Now I was, I was raised, I was raised an Irish Catholic as opposed to a Roman Catholic. And I, um, it's, di we, it's different. We, we take the sacramental wine thing a little further than you guys do. And uh, we, we make it a lifestyle, us Irish Catholics. And, uh, I mean, I lived in alcoholism my entire life. I mean, I come from this huge, well, one of the, one of the, one of the terrible secrets of my family is that we're not actually Irish or Scottish, <laughs> and uh, uh, which are worse drunks than the Irish. And uh, so we lived in the alcoholism. Everybody was falling. Everybody had the failing. Oh God, love me, has the failing. And uh, I mean, it was, so so I mean, it was kind of it was kind of like uh, you know asking asking a fish to describe water. It was just simply the element they live in. You know, and so everybody drank. So it was hard to notice alcoholism in my family. Unless you did something awful like burn down the house or or shoot a close relative that, that got people's attention. Um, so anyway, I, I I had a little trouble with God. By the time I arrived in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, my spiritual life consisted of two alcoholic prayers. The first one is, Dear God, get me out of this and I'll never do it again. And the second alcoholic prayer is, Whew. And, you know, that was the extent of my spiritual life. But luckily, that that's see, I thought to take the third step, you got to you know you got to come up with the vestments and the incense and the whole number. You know, you had to have it all in place. But it's not that. It's I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand God. I had no understanding of God. I still have no understanding of God. If I understood God, we'd be in big trouble. Uh, so what the decision is like, it's, it's like this. That third step is like if I decide to buy a house. If I decide to buy a house, I don't walk into a house. What I do is I buy a newspaper. And I look through the, uh, the what ads and I look at houses and then I find a real estate agent. And the real estate agent takes me around and we go look at houses and then we find a house that we like and we make an offer and there's a counter offer and an offer and a counter offer and an offer. And we buy the house. You know, we... That's, that's approved. And then we go to the bank, and then we do the title search, and there's the escrow and everything else. So from the time I make the decision to the time I get the keys to the house, there's a whole lot of steps. And that's what the third step is, is that I made a decision to start living a life that was based on spiritual principles. 
something that terrified me and something that was really awful because I really thought if I got really, really spiritual in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd end up running a 12-step house in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> and I didn't really want to do that. But you know what? I was so desperate that I was willing to that if that's what the deal was, okay. You know, I was, I, you know, <laughs> the abuse of alcohol had made me sweetly reasonable by the time I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, just beat up, just beat to death. So I made the decision and we started on the journey. Now let me tell you, if this was just a journey, I'd have never taken it. But this is an adventure. This sobriety thing is an adventure. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an adrenaline junkie along with everything else. You know, I love scaring myself to death. I love living on the edge. I love all that stuff. You know, I, you know, I just, I just love being out there. You know. I don't know if that comes as a big surprise to you or not, but anyway, I just love being out there. And uh, and so, what my sponsor explained to me, the the, the miracle guy, um, who was shoving these steps down my throat, was that uh, that this was an adventure. And I love it. I mean, that's what it is. And any great adventure has really good parts to it and really lousy parts to it. And if you think that, that sobriety is the absence of problems, <laughs> I got a big surprise for you. Because this is about real life. What this whole program is designed to do is to return us to real life, is to get us out there in real life. Living out there, having families out there, being parts of communities, being employees, being employers, living the life, you know. And I wanted that desperately. I didn't want to be one of those guys who was a big deal in AA who couldn't hold a job, you know. Didn't interest me at all. I just, you know, I just wanted to keep coming here and knowing you and getting better and being out there, you know. And, uh, and so I started on this adventure. And, uh, you know, before you start on some kind of incredible adventure, you've got to find out what you're taking on the journey. And that's what the, the inventory is about. I had to find out what kind of baggage I had, what I was going to take and what I was going to leave. And so I did this thing. My sponsor, I was three weeks over. My sponsor said, you have three weeks to do your uh, your inventory. Here's the date we're going to do your fifth step. Well, I didn't know you couldn't do it in three weeks, you know. So I did it. And when I was six weeks over, I sat down with this man that I'd known for six weeks and told him everything about me. That's not my style. I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about me as long as you tell me a little bit about you. And then if you crowd me, I'll threaten to expose you. <laughs> But suddenly I had this guy who knew everything about me. And let me tell you, the phone calls got real short. You know, they were no, now no longer an hour or half an hour to explain the problem. We could cut right to the bottom line. He had all the info. So it was all laid out. I had somebody in my life who knew me. You know, and one of our problems as alcoholics is our inability to be really intimate, you know. Intimate's fairly, intimacy is fairly simple. It's, you know, telling you who I am and asking you for what I need. Real easy to say, real hard to do. And uh, I finally had somebody in my life who known me, who knew me. And I, I, I needed to be known. I just needed to be known. I, you know, I was a spy in my own life. You know, I was an outlaw. I was an alien. I was an unwelcome guest all my life. And here was somebody that was on my side who knew me. And so... So what I did was I reported to my guide, and that's what a sponsor is. A sponsor is not a god or a guru. A sponsor is a guide. It's somebody who knows the trail, basically. And, uh, and he was, gonna t he was guide guiding me on this adventure. So I told him what the baggage was. 
And uh, and then we did the sixth and seventh step, you know, where we got rid of the stuff that was holding me back and tried as best we could to put in place the stuff that I was going to need, the stuff that I didn't have that I was going to need for this adventure. And then before you, you leave on an adventure, you got to clean up the campground, you know. And that's what the eighth and ninth step's about. It's about cleaning it up so I'm free to move on. And uh, and I did that. I did a list of, of with, with him. You know, when, up up in our area, there's this whole big thing that you do your you do your fifth step with like a priest or a psychologist, this is somebody you, you know you're never going to see again, which is just nonsense. You know, if somebody comes comes back and says, "Well, I did my fifth step with Father Franahan," and still nobody knows who this guy is. You know, Father Franahan does, but nobody ever sees him. And uh, but then I had I had this guy. Uh, oh, my sponsor used to do this. He said, "Listen, you need to go talk to that guy because he's got a problem like you do, and you, you know you can share something." I said, "Wait a minute, did you tell him? Did you tell him?" He said, "No, I just know. You know, go over." To... So I was forced to go over and share my deepest darkest secrets with people. You know, and what I found out is my deep, deepest darkest secrets were pretty boring. You know, I want you to know that way down deep I'm shallow. <laughs> I'm probably one of the least interesting human beings on the face of the earth. Thank God, you know. I was fascinated with my problem. <laughs> you know, the only thing that made me interesting were my desperate secrets. You know, once I got out, people were saying, that's it? <laughs> that's what we've been talking about here? Yeah. So, by the time I'd done my night, you know, at, you know that, that that book, I don't know whoever wrote that book. I don't think it was Bill. Um, I mean, when you're halfway through the ninth step, things get better. I mean, things get really better. You start feeling better. You start feeling like not better than and less than. You start feeling even, even with doing amends. Oh, man. There's a lot of reasons I stay sober, but, you know, I, 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 I don't want to do those amends again. You know, it keeps me from doing a lot of dumb stuff. You know, because I know if I do this, I've got to make an amends for it. And I hate making Oh, man. You know, and, and you know, at first there's a, there's a real adrenaline rush because you don't know how people are going to react. And you say, you know, I'm sorry I threw up on your Christmas tree, but I have this disease. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times they were so drunk they don't remember it either. And, uh, you know, some of them get angry and some of them go, oh, please. You know, and so, you know I've, I've got a guy who's going through it. He keeps calling me every day. <gasps> This miracle. Oh, I've been in events and they didn't throw me out of the office. Great. And uh, <laughs> anyway, I did all that kind of stuff. And then, and then comes the tenth step. And the tenth step is about, is about keeping my side of the street clean. And uh, that's on a daily basis. Now, see, I told you I was raised an Irish Catholic. So I had a lot of trouble with the tenth step at first because I come from a, a, you know, I come from a religion that if you thought about it, you've done it. And I'm a thinker, you know. <laughs> and uh, man, you know, so I, I, you know, I carried around a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, you know. And uh, so I started doing the test of what did I do right today, and what did I do wrong today? Well, I couldn't remember anything right I'd done. All I could remember is what I did wrong, you know. And uh, and so I talked to my sponsor about it. And so I decided to do what did I do today that I approve of, and what did I do today that I don't approve of. And uh, the stuff I approve of, I said, okay, thanks, God, for giving me the insight to do that right. And uh, and the stuff I don't approve of, I, I set out to change. And, and that's made it easier for me to, to kind of get through that. And then the, the 11th step comes up, and that's prayer and meditation. <laughs> now, I'm a child of the 60s. I know about meditation. I mean, you light up a big bong, and you listen to sitar music, and you meditate. 
And, uh, and I thought meditation was you get quiet enough so that God will let you know what's coming up. I was using meditation for fortune telling was what I was doing. Instead, meditating long enough to just be still with who I am right now at this moment so I can react to my life as I'm living my life instead of projecting my life like I should live it somewhere out there. And uh, I've, I've fiddled around with it. I mean, I've gotten highly spiritual in this program at times. I mean, so spiritual I was no earthly good. You know that, that spiritual? I've, I've, I've been there, you know. At one point in my life, I was probably in danger of being, of being crushed to death by a falling bookshelf of spiritual literature. <laughs> but... Um, I've gotten it down kind of simple now. What I basically do as far as my meditation is I try to get quiet a couple of times a day in the, at the beginning of the day at the end and I concentrate on the, on the phrase, be still and know that I am God. And I break that phrase down word by word, be. Just sit, just be, you know, just, just be. Listen to my breathing, hear the gurgling in my stomach, you know, the radio in the next place, the traffic going by, just be. Just be. Be still. Just stop moving. Just breathe in, breathe out, just stop. Be still. Be still and know. And what that is is about is just opening up my head. Be still and know. And be still and know that, that I'm now completely open, you know. And then be still and know that I am. And what that is is that, that little voice that's in the center of my, my life, what we call intuition, what the nuns call the soul, whatever it is that connects me to you and ultimately to, to a power greater than me, be still and know that I am. And then it identifies itself. Be still and know that I am God. Because I really believe that I carry around a little microchip of God within us. I believe that we all do. I believe that we all, that we're all um, created in the image and likeness of God. I don't think it's the way we look. I think it's the way we act. You know, when somebody gets to the meeting at six o'clock and, and puts on the, uh, puts on the coffee for the group, I can see the family resemblance. You know, when somebody gets on the bus and goes to central office, and gets the literature and brings a big box back on the bus. I can see the family resemblance. When some little old lady says to some little 15-year-old chick who's tattooed from head to toe, come sit next to me, dear. I can see the family resemblance. I can see it when some guy holds another guy as the guy breaks down in tears and cries for the first time in his, his adult life. I can see the family resemblance. I can see the, the way we look like each other when we're being loving. And I see it all the time in these rooms. It's one of the reasons I keep coming back. And uh, and that's why I love this, this fellowship. And so um, so I be, I believe that that's that's how I I've, I've come to to live with with a, with the idea of spiritual principles and the idea of something far greater than me is that I believe we connect to each other through that 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 voice that we've ignored for so many years for so long while we were practicing our disease and that this. This fellowship enables us to listen to finally for the first time. And that connects to the voice in you. That, that's how I can look at you and say, I know how you feel. You know? And this is what I've done with my life. And that's the 11th step for me. And then comes the 12th step. And the 12th step is in three parts. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That's the promise in the second step. The promise in the second step is that I'll be restored to sanity. And I believe that the way that I'm restored to sanity, the alcoholic of my type, is that I have some kind of spiritual awakening. No, I was waiting for a spiritual event. You know, I was waiting for a burning bush or the wind to blow up my butt like Bill Wilson. You know, I was waiting for some big deal, you know. And so far that has not happened. What has happened to me is the evolutionary variety. You know, they talk about in the, 
in the, the spiritual experience, the appendix. Uh, it's been an evolving thing, an evolving sense of peace, an evolving sense of being connected, an evolving sense of being a worthwhile human being. Um, and, uh, and also what, what happens to us is we get a sense of wonder restored to us. By the time we, I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was terrified and cynical at the same time. Not a great, you know, not a great, you know, combination. Angry and terrified, you know. I didn't think anything was cute. I didn't think anything was wonderful. I didn't think anything like that, yeah. <laughs> so you stick around here and you develop AAIs, you know, those big, soft, kind of dumb eyes, you know. We all look like deer, you know. <laughs> you know. I found myself crying at supermarket openings and card tricks and, you know. <laughs> Look at that sunset. <laughs> you know. Talk about getting in touch with your feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but the sense of wonder, the sense of awe. You know, our daughter was born in sobriety and, and we didn't belong to any kind of, uh, you know, organized religion. But I found my spiritual life in Alcoholics Anonymous and that was fine with me. I never went back to being an altar boy. Um, and uh, so we, we we came up with the problem is how are we, how are we going to teach our daughter about spirituality and my sponsor's wife is just a hoot her name is Ruby and Ruby runs around saying God is too cool Ruby says look I mean four kinds of tulips would have been fine but 250 God is too cool <laughs> we would have been fine with a dozen butterflies but there's about 375 different kinds of butterflies God is so that's what we taught Kate. So Kate runs around and goes, God, God is too cool. Yeah, it's just great. And then we carry the message to, to alcoholics who still suffer. And the obvious alcoholics who still suffer are the ones that are moving, you know, coming into the rooms. I mean, those are, those are the really obvious ones, the brand new ones. But alcoholics suffer in sobriety, too. But let me tell you, this adventure thing, you know, a great adventure has really great parts and really lousy parts. And over, I'll, I'll be... I'll be 30 years sober in April, which is just unbelievable. But I, uh, I, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've been rich and I've been poor at Alcoholics Anonymous. I prefer the problems of being rich to the problems of being poor. But they all got problems. You know, I found out that stuff doesn't fix you or protect you. Uh, I found out that it's an inside job. It has to do with my relationship with my higher power. That's the most thing. I mean, we've gone broke. I've gotten cancer. I've got a heart thing that's going on. I mean, you know... Um, we've done it all, you know. We've you know, we've been to the most incredible places in the world because of Alcoholics Anonymous. We've, uh, you know, I've had great jobs. I've lost great jobs. I've had other jobs that weren't great. You know, the the whole thing. I mean, you know, there, this is not about protecting us from life here. It's about us embracing life on life's terms. And sometimes life's terms are lousy. You know. We lose people out of our lives. I know more dead people than I, you know than anybody I know. You know, people before the program, people who who come to the program. My best friend Rich was one of the first people to die of AIDS. You know, when they still called it gay cancer, and I, you know, I would go visit him in the hospital, and they had him in this isolation pod. And nobody was supposed to go near him without gloves and masks and everything else. And I used to go in and, and, and push him over to the side of his bed and sit on his bed and read a book. He was so desperately lonely that it was just having somebody there. And he would curl over, put his arms around me, and go to sleep. And the nurses would come in and freak, you know. And I kept saying, relax, kid. I'm not going to get it from spit or anything else, you know. 
and uh, nobody knew. But uh, but you know, and I, I and I, I was there for when he you know when he died. Uh, that, that kind of stuff happens at Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, it's just the way it goes. Um, I've been fired. I've been on you know I've been, I've been like the, the spiritual speaker at a great big huge conference and had to get back because I had to report to unemployment. You know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you absolutely never know where the alcoholic who is still suffering is. He may have five years, he may have ten years, he may have twenty years, you never know, you know. The idea is that we walk around these these things doing the best we can, being carrying the best message we can. And sometimes the best message that we're carrying is that we're okay, that we're sober, that we're getting through stuff. You know, John and I were talking about the second surrender. Oh, man, I hit it when I was five and a half years sober. I mean, I literally destroyed my life and didn't drink, and then had to had to rebuild it. Had to go back uh, and look at actually who I was at and, and rework the steps. I mean, we all hit that that second one, which is I think harder than the first one, and it seems to happen to a lot of us between five and six years sober, and a lot of us commit suicide around that. You know, we're not going to drink. You know, I'll kill myself instead. Ooh, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know. Uh, and a lot of people disappear at that time. A lot of people drink again. Or a lot of people go crawling back to their sponsor and say, okay, what do I do now? You know, and the guy says, we better take the steps again. We better look at the traditions in your life. And, uh, and so I, I've done that. What my life is like now is... Um, well, you know, you know, I like my life to be all good or all bad. You know, I hate this mixture stuff. You know, I hate, I hate good stuff and bad stuff. I, I mean, I just don't like that. I mean, I like it all one thing or the other. I can deal with famine, death, war, and pestilence. You know, I can deal with that, you know. I just can't deal with, you know, skin cancer, you know. That's why I got, I got that. I did. I'm one of those... I was a blonde, blue-eyed kid who fried myself every summer, you know, so now I'm paying for it. It started about, um, about I don't know, 20 years ago. They started taking little bits and pieces of me away. Now I go to the doctor and anything that looks weird, they cut off or freeze off or burn off or something. Yeah, well, man, it's just, <laughs> it's just lovely. I've had to give up my day job as stripogram, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what a jerk I am. I mean, I'm absolutely... You know, one of the things that stuns me is my capacity to be an idiot. I mean, it's just... I'm, you know, after all this sobriety, I'm just... You know, in an instant, I can turn into an asshole. I can't believe it. I mean, I just can't believe it. A couple of things. Our, our, where, where we live, we live, a, we live in a really nice area of Vancouver, and you have to go over this bridge. And, and what happens is four lanes of traffic go into two lanes of traffic. And so everybody has to kind of... We line up great. We're Canadians are great at lining up. That's one of the things that we pride ourselves on. And so, and so everybody merges, you know. And, and you let the guy in front of you merge, and then you merge, and then the guy merge. It's just it's lovely to watch. I mean, if you're from LA, you can't believe it, you know. Anyway, so one of my things in life, I'll tell you how spiritual I am. I have a real hard time with small blonde women in giant black SUVs. I don't know what it is. I just don't know what it is. They just they just piss me off. I don't know. You know I just don't know what it is. So I'm merging. I'm merging one day, and, and 
I was driving Bonnie's car. She's got this uh, this Honda that's about this high off the ground. Mm-hmm. This is giant, you know, and this is, you know, this blonde in a black SUV. You know, her hair weighs, weighs more than she does. And she's got a cell phone and a cup of coffee. I don't know how the hell she's driving this thing, you know. Probably with her skinny little knees. And, uh, and she ain't virgin. It's my turn. She ain't virgin. So we're coming down to it, you know, side by side. I'm not giving up. And she's oblivious to it, you know. So Mr. A.A. here rolls out my window and goes, Ha! Up high. Up high so she'll see it. And she doesn't see it. And she's like, yeah. So finally she sees it and goes, you know. I thought, thank God I took the easy does it sticker off the back of the car. Live and let live, you know. Or the let go and let God was. They got to let taking that one off. What a jerk. So anyway, I, 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 I had this spot on the top of my ear, and my dermatologist said, whoops, we're going to have that looked at. So we went down to the cancer clinic, and the cancer clinic, and these six doctors come in, and they look at my ear, and they all go, hmm, and then they go up. And one guy comes in and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I said, wait a minute, there's six of you and one of me. How much does my vote count? <laughs> they got no sense of humor, you know. <laughs> so he said, um, this is what we're going to do. Uh, there's, uh, there's two alternatives. One of them is um, uh, we can do radiation and, and uh, 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 15 radiation treatments on this thing. Or um, we can uh, take the year off. And and a lot of the flesh around it, but he said, "Don't worry, we can uh, we can build a prosthetic here that would connect to your skull with magnets." <laughs> I said, "Gee, you're just a bundle of good news, Doc." <laughs> and he said, "Well, those are the other." He said, "We we make very nice prosthetics." Well, Doc. And then, but, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I've been around you guys just a lot. You know, we, we cry at the good stuff and laugh at the bad stuff, you know. So I click into that alcoholic thing and I start vamping on this. Thing. Well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, maybe I could get different kinds of ears. You know, I could get like, <laughs> I could get like a Spock ear. That'd be fun. <laughs> or I could get one with jewelry. You know, I could get one with a diamond in it. So, you know, stick that on or, you know, kind of like a mood ear. You know, whatever I was into, you know. And I said, the other thing is I could, you know, at night I could take it off and just stick it on the refrigerator, you know. <laughs> With a note that says, don't forget to pick up the eggs and the milk, you know. And the best thing is that, I, you know, when Bonnie's after me, I could just give it to her and say, here. Talk into this, I'm going to take a nap. And this doctor is looking at me like, they may have to call it the psychiatry people, you know. This one's breaking down in front of me. Oh, man, yeah. So uh, so we did the radiation. So we irradiated my ear. Now, this is the denial part. You know. The denial part is I went in for radiation 15 times uh, at 7.30 in the morning so that I could go to work. And about the eighth time, the nurse said, why do you come in the first thing in the morning? I said, well, to go to work. She said, most people go home. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. You know, my, my ears turn into jello. You know, it's worked. You know, I'm covering it with earmuffs and stuff. But uh, 
But then I start, you know, then then I get into, you know, this is this is how big a jerk I am. Um, I start getting to, wow, you know, it started to hit me, you know, that this could actually happen. And then, and then I start going the other way. I'm like, you know, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to take it off, and then they're going to realize that it's really, it's really spread, you know. And so probably what they're going to end up doing is probably <laughs> taking a good deal of my face away, you know. And uh, and what I'll then have to do is I'll probably wear a mask like the the Phantom of the Opera, you know, and, and then they're going to ask me to speak at a, a convention, you know, and I'll, I'll have this mask on, you know, and people will say, God, he's, he's so spiritual. I mean, <laughs> man, you know, they, they took away half his face and he, and he flew across the country to carry the message. What a wonderful human being, you know. He slurps a little when he talks. <laughs> yeah, what a fabulous... What a dick I am. <laughs> so I got this weird ear and here I am. Yeah. Bonnie and I... Uh, Bonnie's in Al-Anon. Um, she went a week after I got sober... I got a week on her. <laughs> Doesn't make any difference to them, you know that. And uh, thank God for Al-Anon. I mean, I'm sober because I'm I'm an alcoholic Anonymous. I'm married because my wife's an Al-Anon. And uh, you know, an Al-Anon is just not somebody who's married to an alcoholic. You know, an Al-Anon is somebody who attends Al-Anon meetings, who works the steps and the traditions of Al-Anon, who sponsors other people in Al-Anon, and regularly attends meetings involved in service. And my life has been graced by Al-Anon for almost 30 years and uh, they're funny you know the Al-Anons are funny I just I love al <laughs> I love al so occasionally Bonnie will have like an Al-Anon party that's where everybody brings too much food and uh, you know 20 of them show up with enough food to feed an army and uh, and then they split a bottle of wine they get really, they get really crazy you know and then they argue about who's going to take it home, what's left. <laughs> no, no, I can't take it home. I have an alcoholic at home. No, 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 no I don't want it. Oh, I never drink it. It'll just turn to vinegar, you know. And finally one of them said, oh, I'll take it. And then the rest of them think, I wonder if she's in the right program. <laughs> My sponsor and I, my sponsor and I, we go to dinner with, with Bonnie and his wife. My sponsor is a guy named Milton Merle, who's just a fabulous guy, and his wife is Ruby. And, and uh, so we'll go, we'll go out to Chinese food. And, and Bonnie and, uh, and Ruby do this dialogue occasionally when they're feeling kind of frisky. They'll say, you want to split a beer? <laughs> and then they say, oh, no, I had one three weeks ago. Well, maybe. Oh, I don't know. They, you know, they go on and on and on and on. And finally say, oh, all right. So then they get the beer and they, they, you know, they pour it out. And then Ruby is never cold enough, so she puts an ice cube in her. And then they take three sips and leave it. No, 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 we don't finish that. God, they're just hysterical. Alan's are the best. I'm really glad that you that this 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 whole thing here is about families and about everything. I just got to briefly tell you about my daughter because I you have beautiful and intelligent children, but I have Kate. 
<laughs> and Kate is 22, almost 22 years old and gorgeous and uh, uh, has been raised in this fellowship. She, uh, she just simply has been raised according to the principles of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. She has always been autonomous. We understand that parents do not govern. Um, she, uh, she has an extraordinary sense of self. Uh, she's a pretty fabulous girl. I, when she was in the fourth grade, she announced to me, she said, I'm the best artist in the class. And I said, oh, really? Who told you that, honey? And she said, no one. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, you know, at that point I was 50 years old. I couldn't say that. You know, I thought, my God, my duty is not to suppress that feeling about herself, you know. And she has a great sense of that. She's, uh, we don't know which side of the fence she's coming down on because she likes to party hardy, but then so did her mother. So we don't know whether she's going to marry a drunk or be one, but the thing is she knows where the, knows where the solution is real fast. Uh, when she was down in California uh, going to school in Santa Monica, and one day she called and said, I need to go to a meeting, Dad. I said, whoa, okay, you know. So I get on the phone and get my best friend, Mary Murphy, and she calls, and they take her to the Pacific group, Steve's Pacific group. She meets Clancy and Clancy's daughter and everything else, and I thought, oh, this must be the moment. So I call Mary back the next day. I said, all right, Mary, how'd it go? And she said, it's none of your business. <laughs> said, but she's not a drunk. And I said, oh, okay. So I called Kate and I said, how was it? She said, you know, Dad, I'd had a lousy couple of weeks. Work was terrible. School was terrible. I was having trouble with my roommate. It was all that. And I just needed to go somewhere with program people. And I thought, holy cow. No matter what kind of trouble she gets herself into in life, that's where she's going to go. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, and the interesting thing is she didn't call me. Steve, the reason that we're staying sober is for other people's kids. Our kids are never going to call us. But they're going to call the people that come to our house. They're going to call the people we know. And they're going to watch us. They watch us. They know what we're doing. And they, they absorb this fellowship. They do all the things, that, you know. They've got all the information, you know. So what we've done, Bonnie and I, is we've broken a chain. We both come from generations of alcoholism. We've broken the chain. Because the solution is at hand for them, you know. And that may be the best thing that we do in our lives, you know, other than our own sobriety and other our own recovery in Al-Anon, is to be there for other people's kids. We've done it. We've taken other people's kids to, to meetings and that kind of stuff. So here I am. I'm. Uh, that's my life. I, uh, I've i got a fabulous job. I run a theater in Vancouver. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all kinds of creative stuff and, uh, and having a good time. And uh, recently I had a little heart thing. Uh, they... Uh, they've now uh, they found out parts of my heart don't work quite right and they're, they're medicating it and doing all that kind of stuff and I'm, I'm going to be just fine but I've got to lose weight and I can't eat salt so everything is like prison food now and uh, <laughs> um, you know I've got to exercise and lose a lot of weight and I'll, you know all that boring stuff you know so that I can live to be 120 years old with all my friends dead it's just going to be really wonderful <laughs> So that's what I'm doing. So what I do is uh, the reason I come to these things when I'm asked and I'm, I'm thrilled to be asked is to report into you because you have always remained over the almost 30 years my teachers. You know? And so what I try to do is report to you how I'm doing and, and allow you to look at my life and, and you'll let me know how I'm doing. You know? If you're going to judge me, be gentle. <laughs> I know I've got a long way to go. But because of you, I've come a tremendous distance, and I'm deeply, deeply grateful to you. God bless you, and keep coming back.